getting worried, um, Annie will definitely be speaking tomorrow night, so <laughs> I'm not doing all the rest of the talks. <laughs> <laughs> number of years ago now, probably at least 10, I guess, I was out in the San Francisco Bay Area where I used to live and uh, visiting friends. And uh, someone sent me a message or uh, let me know that there would be an evening meditation that was happening in the, uh, at a place uh, in the East Bay, at a place called the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery there. And this was uh, a well-known and very respected teacher that I knew. Uh, he's, have, he's a monk in the Thai forest uh, lineage. Uh, and I had spent time at the monastery where he's the abbot. I knew him pretty well. And I personally, I had a very high regard for him as a teacher. And I'd done, re spent time on retreat and uh, knew him, had known him for some years. So. I had that evening free and I made my way over to the, the center there in Berkeley and went in and paid respects and found a place to sit. And it was a, a familiar evening to me having spent time in the monasteries uh, with these folks. And so it started with a evening puja, some devotional practices and uh, some chanting. And then there was a period of meditation and after this, uh, the Ajahn was going to give a, a Dhamma discourse. And I still remember his first words, uh, how he opened the talk. Uh, this many years later, he said, I've been a monk for 25 years now, and I want you to know that I haven't gotten anything out of it. Um, which I think he, he wanted to get our attention. It worked with me, at least. Um, you know, at face value, that's quite a strong statement uh, coming from someone who's, who's lived that life for so long and had the possibility of uh, raising a lot of questions in, in one's mind about what he could have possibly meant by this. I mean, this is someone who's really dedicated their life to following the, the path that the Buddhists taught. And they, he's adopted this lifestyle of utter simplicity which is quite austere by most standards, certainly by mine, uh, with this total dependence on others uh, just for his daily sustenance. You know, in that tradition, you don't eat unless someone offers you food every day. And he owns nothing but his robes and a bowl. And, you know, he was a very well known, respected teacher, as I said. He's the abbot of a monastery, he trains monks and nuns who come to join that community. And his, just his very presence is really inspiring to a lot of people. And so for him to say that he hadn't gotten anything out of it, out of being a monk, was uh, kind of shocking. And, you know, why would he keep living that way then? You know, what's it about? He's not doing it for fun, obviously. And so he was pointing to something, obviously, uh, other than the, the face value of those words by making that statement. We live in, in many ways, we live in a culture of, of uh, real acquisitiveness. And 
our culture is so devoted to getting and having things and experiences and knowledge, all of the stuff that we acquire and get and have. And a lot of the time our happiness seems to depend on getting things and certainly society often measures our success in this way to a large extent. And sometimes our whole sense of self-worth worth is tied up in, in this, our sense of who we are. We measure it by all that we've gotten sometimes. And so there's some very strong conditioning in this way. <clears throat> and so it's no wonder that sometimes we bring some of this attitude with us when we come to a retreat. Even we might not notice it, but in subtle ways, you know, we want to get more peaceful or get more calm or get more wise or get enlightened. And if nothing else, we want to get our money's worth. And so at times we can find ourselves feeling frustrated or dissatisfied. We feel like we're not getting anywhere with our practice or we don't get what the teachers are saying. We haven't gotten any calmer or more peaceful. We haven't gotten a more loving disposition. And these feelings can be especially strong at times during the end of a retreat. You know, it's almost over and we haven't gotten it yet, whatever it is. And so we want something to show for our efforts, for our time. (coughs) So coming back to my story of my monk when he said, I want you to know that I haven't gotten anything out of it. He wasn't saying that his life in Rome had been without value. He wasn't questioning his decision to live that way. You know, to me, seeing him, being around him, he, he seemed to be really happy and contented. He, there was this air of calm and ease, confidence in his presence. And, you know, no one was compelling him. He could have left that lifestyle at any time if he wanted to. But as he went on to explain that evening, the value that he found in that life of simplicity and renunciation came not so much from anything that he had gotten, but from all that he had let go of, all that he'd abandoned, which is a very different attitude than trying to get things. And I know for myself, I've spent a lot of time and energy over the years trying to get and then hold on to something from meditation practice, some kind of special state or some blissful experience that I could somehow get and then keep. Or at times trying desperately to recapture some past experience as if this was somehow the key to my happiness or the key to awakening. I mean, I I found myself months, even years after some experience trying to recreate the exact conditions in order to get it to happen again. You know, what did I eat and how was I sitting and what exactly, what practice was I doing? I've never had any success with it. And I've spent a lot of time trying to you know, get more concentrated. I remember once I decided I would try to 
be with every breath for an hour sitting period. And there were 854 of them or something. I counted them all, but I'm not sure that it did me any good. But, you know, real effort in that area or trying to get somehow more wise or more equanimous. Jack Cornfield has a saying he likes to uh, say about retreats. He says, this isn't the shopping mall, it's the dump. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that's a, <laughs> a good way to look at it, you know. We're not here to shop for meditative experiences. We're, it's the dump and we want to jettison stuff more than getting anything. So in a sense, our practice really is much more about letting go. It's more about what we abandon and relinquish. It's ulti ultimately, it's much more about surrendering and allowing and not about getting anything at all. And we realize the end of suffering by abandoning the causes of suffering, not by attaining some special sublime state or not by getting anything at all. So then what are we doing here on retreat? You know, why are we spending all this time sitting and walking over these weeks? There's nothing intrinsically holy or wonderful about sitting and walking. These are mundane things that almost everybody does everywhere, does some of them every day, right? They might not regard it as meditation, but it's the same activity. So what's the point? You know, we're not hopefully trying to make a religion out of sitting and walking or trying to get really good at sitting and walking. <laughs> and we don't have to come to the retreat for that. <laughs> but we use the form of the retreat to keep things simple and to remove a lot of the doing from our lives, a lot of the busyness that often runs our lives. And when we sit, we just sit. And when we walk, we just walk. And it's nothing special, except that we bring awareness to the, this process. We bring mindfulness to our unfolding experience. And this is the key. We bring mindfulness and this quality of bare attention to the moment by moment unfolding of our life here. And we see things just as they are. We don't add anything to our experience. And this is seeing the Dhamma. We see the truth of the way things really are in any moment. And we can see the Dhamma in this way anytime, anywhere. It doesn't matter what's happening. It's always possible for us to know the truth of things. We can always know right now it's just like this. And if we look in the right way, we'll see that all times and all places are occasions for us to see and hear the Dhamma. You know, we don't need special conditions. We don't have to wait to come on retreat so we can sit on a cushion or a chair and walk up and down in order to see the Dhamma. And this is not to say that there's no value to coming to a retreat. Obviously, I think there is, or I wouldn't be here. And it's a blessing to take time out from the busyness of our lives in this way. All of the distractions and the doing of our 
daily lives that makes up so much of the world. To take time in silence, just that is so rare in the world. I think if you came and didn't do any formal practice, but just were in silence for a month, you'd learn a lot, you'd get a lot of benefit just from that. And to be in a situation that is safe and our only job is to bring awareness to our experience. And then we have the support of, of the Sangha, of the community here and all of the people who are practicing with us. And this is a huge source of strength and support for us. It's hard to even begin to estimate the value of that. And here at IMS, the conditions are really great in a lot of ways. You know, it's pretty quiet and peaceful here. There's not a whole lot of distractions around and it's really beautiful. The countryside around here, forests and streams and ponds. I mean, this is really a forest center. There's a lot of places in Burma and Thailand that get called forest centers, but they're in the middle of a village and there's, it's never quiet. There's always a lot going on. And the woods around here are a wonderful place to see and hear and learn about the Dhamma. Trees, for example, trees can teach us the whole of the Dhamma if we look at them in the right way. A tree is born due to certain conditions and causes. It lives and it eventually dies according to unfolding of natural processes according to the law of nature. You know, a seed falls to the earth, and if the conditions are right, then it'll sprout, and there'll be a seedling. And then over time, if the conditions are right, then we'll have a baby tree there, and then, and then it grows, and there's a sapling, and eventually a mature tree. And if we go out into the woods, we'll see trees in all stages of life. You know, we'll see seedlings and little baby trees and saplings and mature adult trees and, and old trees that are starting to lose their vitality and trees that are dying and those are, that are already dead and have fallen down and are returning to the earth and becoming soil for the other trees. And this is the way of nature, isn't it? It's, it's the natural way of things and we don't make a problem of it out in the woods you know, we find beauty there. All of these different stages of life's unfolding. And maybe a lot of the time we don't really even notice, you know, they're just trees after all. But, but if we look, here's the whole of the Dhamma. It's unfolding right there in front of us. All of the teachings are right there. And if we bring our awareness and our understanding to this, we'll see that the birth of a tree is no different from our own. You know, our bodies are born and they exist because of causes and conditions that come together. And just like a tree, we live dependent on the elements of earth and air and fire and water. We, ta we take food and the body grows and sustained by this nourishment. And like a tree, our bodies are constantly changing you know, hair and skin and nails are growing and dying. Just like a tree is, it loses its leaves and gets new ones. I read somewhere, I think, I think
think I have this number right, but I think the scientists say that every seven years we have an entire new body from the cells dying and getting replaced by new ones. The whole thing replaced. It's kind of amazing to think. Where are we in that whole process if it's all new every seven years? And this is the teaching of the Buddha, really literally in a nutshell. We just don't see it a lot of the time. We don't want to let it in. But if we really understand the practice, then we see that we're really not different from a tree in this very fundamental way. You know, we're the same as all of nature. We're part of nature. And if we see things with mindfulness, we learn that everything, internal and external, is the same in this way. All things having arisen are subject to change and will eventually pass away. This is just the way it is. This is the, the law of nature, the way of nature. And when we go out in the forest, we let things be and we find beauty and joy and peace there in this natural flow and it feels right to us. We have a sense of harmony and rightness. And I think this is why it can be so healing for us to spend time in nature. But somehow then it's different when it comes to ourselves and then it isn't right anymore. It shouldn't be happening and we fight and we struggle and we try to hold on. We don't wanna see that we're just like everything else in the world. This is from Ajahn Chah. Trees, mountains, and vines all live according to their own truth. They appear and die following their nature. They remain impassive, but not we people. We make a fuss over everything. Yet the body just follows its own nature. It's born, grows old, and eventually dies. It follows nature in this way. Whoever wishes it to be otherwise will just suffer. Conditions all go their natural way. Whether we laugh or cry over them, they just go their own way. And there is no knowledge of science which can prevent this natural course of things. You may get a dentist to look at your teeth, but even if he can fix them, they still finally go their own natural way. Eventually, even the dentist will have the same trouble. Everything falls apart in the end. So we're born due to causes and conditions. We change, we live, and eventually we die as these conditions flow and change. And yet so much of the time we'll try every tactic we can find to avoid seeing this fundamental truth. And we look at our culture, and I spoke of this last week or whenever it was in this glorification of youth and youthfulness in our culture. There's this huge industry that caters to this cult of youth and youthfulness and you know we're we're seen as a failure if we get older. There's all these anti-aging creams and they promise us young skin forever and ads that tell us we don't have to grow old and all the cosmetic surgeries and facelifts and things that are available, tonics and elixirs to keep us young. But does any of it really work? I mean, not for long. 
So no matter what we do, no matter how much money we spend, these bodies are eventually destined to grow old and die. And this isn't to say that we don't take care of ourselves. Of course we do, and that's only wise and only helpful. But we can't stay, we can't keep it young forever. <clears throat> After his enlightenment, the Buddha traveled to, uh, to the city of Benares, to a place near there called uh, to the deer park at Isipatana. And he was going there in, in search of this group of five ascetics who had uh, attended on him and, and been his companions during his, his years of practicing severe austerities. And once he had decided that he would go ahead and do some teaching, which he was reluctant to do, he, he thought and cast his eye about for who, who might understand who he could teach. And he thought of his first two teachers initially, but then he he realized that they both had died. And so then he said, well, I'll go find these five ascetics. And they had left him when he took, decided to start eating a little bit more food and abandon his, his severe austerities that were, had brought him to the brink of death. They left saying that he had reverted to luxury and given him up as a slacker at that time but he decided that they would be able to hear. So he, he went there, he heard they were practicing at the deer park there and he went and uh, once he convinced them that he was worth listening to, he gave his first discourse there, which is the Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta, which translates as the discourse, the setting in motion, the wheel of the Dhamma. And it's said that while listening to this first teaching, one of these five ascetics, the Venerable Kondanya, realized the first stage of enlightenment, realized stream entry. And it's described this way in the sutta. It said, the stainless immaculate vision of the Dhamma arose in the venerable Kondanya thus, all that is subject to arising is subject to cessation. And this is the classic description in the suttas that we find of the experience, the moment, and the realization of stream entry. So in essence, what he saw was that all that is born is subject to change, subject to aging, decay, and death. It wasn't any, it's nothing particularly difficult or complex there. It's just seeing this basic fundamental nature of things. That which is born has aging and death as a natural result. And the truth of this surrounds us everywhere all the time. If we really look at things, if we look at a tree, for example, or if we look at our own minds and bodies, we don't have to travel to some special place or find the perfect enlightened master to teach us this. It might help, but we don't need that. We just have to walk out the back door. It's right there. We don't even have to go that far. We just have to look at our own experience, at our own mind-body process to see this. It's just that we have to be willing to actually look at it and to really see this truth. And we might be willing and happy to see it in the woods, you know, when we go 
look at trees and spend time in nature. But we're a lot less willing when it comes to ourselves. But our minds and bodies are constantly changing. How many births and lives and deaths do we see in just one day or in a single meditation period? There's this continual flux that's going on, arising and ceasing over and over. This is just the nature of all conditioned things, of all compounded, fabricated things. But so much of the time, most of the time, we're just lost in the process. We're caught up in the flow, caught up in the world of the senses, in the world of sights and sounds and touch and the rest of it. And especially we're lost in the world of our thoughts and emotions. And we attribute a reality and a solidity to it that it fundamentally does not have. And then we try to hold on to it. But it's like trying to hold on to a stream or a river. And no matter how hard we try, it just keeps slipping through our fingers. And if we look, we see that the river actually doesn't exist. It's just the flow. There's nothing to hold on to. Sometimes it's more like trying to hold on to a rope that's slipping away and we try to grab hold on and, and we get rope burn and it hurts. And we wonder why we suffer. But if we're getting rope burn, the only solution is to let go. This is from a, a Thai teacher named Upasaka Ki Nanayon, a wonderful woman who lived in the last century. Great teacher. She said, when you go chasing after experience, and latch onto your sense of self, you create a huge fuss. But when you really know clearly, you sort out these problems and they fade away. If you look into the rippling current of your experience, you'll find that there's actually nothing you can latch onto as having any real essence. Everything disbands and disappears. New fabrications arise and pass away, arise and pass away. They keep on flowing and they seem to involve many issues. But actually there aren't many issues. There's only arising, remaining and passing away. It's because we're so focused on not seeing this that there seems to be so many issues. But no, how, no matter how many there seem to be, there's only just this, arising, remaining and passing away. Like a rippling current of water where the rippling isn't a thing at all. If you learn to see skillfully in this way, you'll see that all things arise, remain, and then pass away. The past has passed away. The future hasn't yet come. Look simply at the present, arising and passing away right before your eyes, and don't hold on. When you see arising, remaining, and passing away, pure and simple, right in the present moment, and then let go, that's when you gain release. <laughs> I see this understanding as directory, directly related to the idea of taking refuge. When we try to hold on to this flow, to this river of change, 
we're taking refuge in that which is inherently unreliable and unstable. You could say we're placing our confidence and our trust. You could say we're placing our hearts on that which by its very nature is not reliable. And this is a really, this is a total setup for suffering. And then when we do suffer, we blame the world and we point our fingers here and there and we try to fix the blame, find fault. But the world isn't to blame for our suffering. It's just doing its thing. It's unfolding lawfully due to changing causes and conditions according to the laws of nature. It's just that we've taken refuge in the wrong thing. And I think it's really worth looking at this, each of us individually. What does this mean, this idea of taking refuge? I mean, in this tradition, we we say we go to refuge to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, the Triple Gem. And here on the retreat, we, we chant the refuges periodically. But does this have any real meaning for us? You know, do we go through the motions because that's what we do and everyone else is doing it? Maybe when we come into the hall here, we bow to this Buddha Rupa behind me here. And this can be a beautiful practice can be a, a really lovely gesture of respect. It can be a very devotional practice and it can touch us deeply and genuinely. But it's important to know for ourselves what it is we're actually bowing to. You know, it's not this sculpture. This is a bronze casting. There's no intrinsic value there. It's just a piece of metal but we bow to what it symbolizes, right? I mean, this might seem like an obvious point, but I think it's really worth looking into our hearts and minds to see what we're really doing. You know, what are we actually taking refuge in as we go through the days here? What are we placing our trust on? What are we placing our hearts upon? We need to know this individually for ourselves. And so if the Buddha statue represents the triple gem, this refuge in Buddha and Dhamma and Sangha, we don't find them in the statue, we find them in our own heart and mind. And so this is a place of refuge that goes with us, with us everywhere. And so if we choose to bow, we bow in honor of and in gratitude to this. And so what is refuge in the Buddha? I see this as refuge in wisdom and wakefulness. Buddha comes from the word awake, to be awake. And then the possibility of our deepest understanding and our own potential for realization and for freedom. And maybe this symbol of the historical Buddha might represent this for us, but this potential is always there for us regardless of the changing conditions of our lives, no matter what's happening internally or externally, we always have this possibility to see, to be awake and to see with wisdom and clarity. And refuge in the Dhamma. This is taking refuge, placing our trust in the truth of the way things really are in any moment. This is the Dhamma, the truth of how it is right now. And no matter what's happening, we can always know this. 
It doesn't matter that everything's constantly changing. It doesn't matter that the world and everything in our experience is completely unstable and unreliable. We can always know right now it's just like this. And the refuge in Sangha, we acknowledge and we bow to the support of those who share this journey with us, to this community, and this great source of strength and courage that comes from this. And we bow to those who've walked the path before us and who show us the way, those who've traveled this path to its end. But I see the refuge in Sangha also as taking refuge in our own highest aspiration and our own greatest potential. And when we connect with our own highest aspiration, this connects us to all beings. And we see that our own freedom and our own happiness are not separate from that of others. That our own awakening is actually one of the greatest gifts that we can offer to others. one of the greatest gifts we can offer to the universe. So when we stop trying to hold on to that which is impermanent, that which is constantly changing, we let go of the source of a lot of suffering in our lives. And there can be a great relaxation in this because we begin to live more in accord with the natural way of things, with the truth of the way things are. And there's a kind of understanding and freedom that begins to inform our lives that's not the result of anything that we've gotten. And when the spotless, immaculate vision of the Dhamma arose in the Venerable Kondanya, he didn't obtain some special state. He simply saw things as they really are. Another way of putting this is to say that he let go of seeing in the wrong, in the wrong way. He let go of a misperception. He let go of wrong view. And as a result, right view arose in him naturally and spontaneously as a result. But the truth that he saw was always there, already there. It didn't come into being at that precise moment so he could then realize it. And so through our practice, we don't get something that we didn't have before. We don't see something or find something that didn't already exist. You know, this possibility for realization is always here, right now in any moment. The monk that I mentioned earlier in the talk, the one who said he hadn't gotten anything out of being a monk, Later in that same talk, he's, he was, he's good with one-liners. He said, we're all swimming in Nibbana with our faces pressed up against the Buddha. We just don't see it. And that's how it is. We're all always swimming in the unconditioned. We don't come to the retreat and create some special kinds of conditions or attain some exalted, rarefied state that somehow brings this into being so that we can have the chance to realize it. This realization is available in any moment and we come to it by letting go, not by having some special experience or attaining some sublime state of mind. 
And so the more we truly relax in the deepest sense, the more that we really stop trying to hold on to that which by its very nature is constantly changing and slipping away, then the more we come into alignment with the way things really are, into greater harmony and balance with life. And we start noticing a lot less struggling in our life. This is another quotation from Ajahn Chah. You will reach a point where the heart tells itself what to do. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful, rare animals will come to drink at the pool, and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. The Buddha taught us to lay down those things that lack a real abiding essence. If you lay everything down, you will see the truth. If you don't, you won't. That's just the way it is. And when wisdom awakens within you, you will see truth wherever you look. Truth is all you will see. I especially love that first line in that quotation, we reach a point where the heart tells itself what to do. When we see this as our practice unfolds and deepens, we learn to trust our heart and our own deepest wisdom more and more. We see that the heart fundamentally does know what to do. There are four reflections. I guess this comes from the Tibetan tradition. I'm not sure Annie knows. They're called the four mind turnings or the four reminders. And the first of these, the first of these four reminders is the reflection on our rare and precious human birth. And it's said that the human realm is the best place for us to practice and realize the Dhamma. It's not too pleasant and it's not too unpleasant. It's not too hard. We're not suffering so much that we can't practice and it's not so pleasant that we have no interest, no motivation. But sometimes we can really take these lives, take so much for granted. But if we take a moment to reflect, we can see how rare it is that we have an opportunity to come to a retreat like this. You know, all the conditions that come together so that we can be here. And the fact that the teachings have survived over these centuries, it's a long time for them to get passed down, but they've been preserved and passed down to us and we have them available. And just the fact that we have any interest in hearing them at all, how rare is that in the world? There's not many people who do very few people who would choose to spend four weeks doing what we're doing here. It's really amazing to think of all that has made it possible for us to be here doing this practice in this way. 
And it's so rare in the world for a group of people to come together like this, dedicated to cultivating wisdom and kindness, to living carefully, to living harmlessly. You know, most, of the, most of the world seems to be moving in the opposite direction and cultivating greed, hatred, and delusion with great vigor. So even if sometimes here we feel like we're the world's worst yogi, which I have felt like a lot over the years, you know, just our willingness to show up and to make what effort we, we can in every moment, just the intention to incline our minds and our hearts towards understanding and freedom, this is huge in the world. There's a great power from this intention. So how do we make the most of this opportunity? You know, we may feel, well, the end of the retreat is, is looming and we can get easily pulled into thoughts of the future and fantasies and plannings It can be very seductive. Thich Nhat Hanh has a wonderful saying. He says, the future is the child of the present. If we take care of the mother, she will take care of her child. So can we do our best to really care for the present? Caring for the present really is the best way to care for the future. We never know when we'll have the chance to come to a retreat again. You know, we may feel like at this point, well, we're, we're never going to come to a retreat again. <laughs> Pretty clear about that. Or we may already be planning the next 10 years of three month retreats every fall, you know. Maybe that changes several times a day. <laughs> but we actually don't know that we'll ever have the chance to come back again, you know, no matter how carefully we plan. We don't know what life has in store for us. And all too soon, we're going to be back in the thick of our, our lives and all of the busyness and the demands on our time and energy. And no matter how much effort we put into planning, we don't know what the future will hold. We don't, know what, we don't know what's coming down the pike. So even though you might be getting tired of hearing us say, say this, these days, these last days can be a very rich time in the retreat. You know, sometimes we don't notice it, but we all have so much momentum of mindfulness from our efforts over these past weeks and our dedication. There's a huge momentum there that we really can draw on now. And so this can be a great time to reflect on our highest aspiration and to really recommit to being here and to our practice and to this really rare and wonderful opportunity. And every moment in the day provides us with a chance to start again and every moment contains everything we need for the highest possible realization. I mean, that's great news. Every moment is complete in that way. And we have all we need. <coughs> I find that very wonderful. You know, it's all here right now. We just have to be willing to look. So I have two endings to this talk. 
And uh, I've done it before. I keep just doing both of them. One is a little bit of, one is the sublime Pali chanting, and the other is some words from the Grateful Dead. So uh, you get them both. So I'll do the, the Pali first. It's a beautiful, short, very famous chant. I know many of you know it. And I'll do it in Pali and then I'll give you the English. Anichavata Sankara Upadavahyata Mino Upajituva Nirujanti Te Sang Upasamo Sukho All formations are truly impermanent. Their nature is to arise and to pass away. Having arisen, they must cease. Their complete stilling brings the greatest happiness. So if I was smart, I would stop there. But I'm giving you the words of Robert Hunter. The wheel is turning and you can't slow down. You can't let go and you can't hold on. You can't go back and you can't stand still. If the thunder don't get you, the lightning will. Small wheel turn by the fire and rod, big wheel turn by the grace of God. Every time that wheel turns round, bound to cover just a little more ground. Round, round, robin, run round, Got to get back to where you belong. A little bit harder, just a little bit more. A little bit further than you've gone before. The wheel is turning and you can't slow down. You can't let go and you can't hold on. You can't go back and you can't stand still. If the thunder don't get you, then the lightning will. Won't you try just a little bit harder? Couldn't you try just a little bit more? Won't you try just a little bit harder? Couldn't you try just a little bit more? So apologies for those of you who know that song and will have it running through your minds for <laughs> the next <laughs> few days. But it's a good one, so. Let's sit quietly for a few minutes.
Thank you for your practice and for your kind attention. There's a walking period now and then the metta chanting at 9.15. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.